Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And here we are, several weeks on, but none the wiser. Steven, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, the ruins of Seattle stand all around me, but uh, I remain in good spirits. Uh, the, the food parcels have been delivered, and I will live mm-hmm. yet another four hours. So have you emigrated to Chaz yet? I think it's chop now, but uh, no, I haven't had the the pleasure of viewing the newest country in the world. Okay, hey, even smaller than Vatican City, so I'm told. <laughs> I mean that, and that's a that's a pretty pretty high bar set. Yeah, or low bar, I guess one of the two. Smaller, but still, uh, it's smaller but equally influential. Mm. Sam, what are you drinking right yeah, now? I am drinking a nice small pour of Scotch. This is a Glenfiddich uh, 18, actually. So it's a very very tasty one. You classy man. So uh, did you put a drop of water in there, a bit of ice, or are you just having it straight up? I had one drop of water. In the <laughs> wow. I've been told that's how to have scotch is you have to quote unquote unlock the flavor by adding a bit of water. I, that's true. And what I always do when I pour scotch is I'll usually take one or two sips of it just straight out of the bottle and then put a drop of water in it. And it always tastes, I think, better with a drop of water. Um, you can pull out more of the nuance, but it's also like noticeably less strong, which is weird. I wonder if that's why it you can taste it better is because the alcohol isn't quite as overpowering. Maybe, but one drop of water in you know an ounce or two of liquid. Um, I'm not sure how big of a difference that, that makes. I don't know. There's some science behind it of like how the water interacts with the oils in in the scotch. To oh, interesting. I have no idea. I'm not even gonna try to. Try to confabulate that. It'll be worse than me trying to explain neuroscience in a few minutes. Fun. So say we all. Well, as for myself, I also am enjoying some uh, delicate flavors of uh, lacroix, uh, sparkling water, uh, and and the the flavor, nay, the the memory the of, a, of a flavor that I'm enjoying. The essence, the homeopathic flavor. Yes, the homeopathic flavor. The the uh, whispered fruit. Uh, from another room that I'm enjoying is uh, Pimpelmousse. Um, so I'm quite sad over here. I, I just haven't really made the... I'm in, I'm in Michigan right now, and I haven't quite made the jump over to a store to start restocking my supplies, but sadness. Steven, what are you drinking? Right now I'm drinking a lovely glass of chilled white wine. I forget what kind of white wine it is, but it's from the uh, vintage year of 2018, and uh, I'm loving it. Them. This might be the first time that I'm the least classy among us. Think so? Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, so, dear listeners, I, I I know that we promised you on last episode that Sam would deliver the results to the uh, conundrums that we faced regarding bureaucracy. However, he has failed to deliver. So, as he said, but Sam, uh, what are we doing instead? We are talking about the master and his emissary. That we are, and and letting the suspense build for and letting ah uh, that that too. Yep, yep. That's, Gosh, that's... is already getting to you, isn't it, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> it took about two seconds. Hey, listener, we we rehearsed that line and he got it wrong. Okay, uh, let's uh, move on to the master and his emissary, chapter three, uh, which just tackles like sort of a few small insignificant topics uh the title is language truth and music um so all you know relatively simple things like going into this i'm, I'm pretty sure i had all those figured out right guys is that about where you were oh super trivial yeah that's pretty pretty close yeah so you know he's gonna try to bring up some new concepts but you know we've 
I we've we've heard this before, and I'm sure that all of you have heard this before. I too. mean, we all know that the Enlightenment project of justifying morality pretty much solved all of this already. Yeah, no, I, oh, yeah. I'm I, I'm pretty sure McIntyre said that. That, mm-hmm. that that sounds like a quote. Definitely. The, the Enlightenment problem of justifying or quest to justify morality uh, solved everything. That's mm-hmm. the, definitely that's, didn't create a metaphysical disaster from which the uh, the Western world is still recovering. A metaphysical disaster or a metaphysical wasteland. Hey, hey. Uh, for reference, this is that's like a reference to like I don't know episode like four or something. No, I maybe think it was episode one where uh, uh, you and Thomas uh, decided that we were going to do uh, or we, we were debating about the name uh, about the name of the podcast. Well, I was going back oh. to the most recent reference, which I think was a little bit later than that. But yes, it's it is also oh, an episode one, which is uh, currently down. I'll get it up eventually. Yeah, we need to get the back up. Well, you're not the one who has to edit it, so. Uh, let's okay. <laughs> let's move on uh, to to wow. chapter three. Someone's a little salty. <laughs> I I checked the other day. We have like thirty five episodes of uh, probably an hour plus on on average over the past year and a half. So uh, that's a lot of content. That is a lot so of much content. That is a that is a lot of tent. Uh, mm. That's a lot of ums and ahs that I've waded through. Um, You're a good and, man, Brevin. To be fair, they're mostly mine more than yours. Y'all both have actually, uh, you managed to avoid them more than I do. Um, Okay, back to the matter at hand. Uh, So at the start of chapter three, uh, good Ian McGillicris says that uh, he's been fairly straightforward with the data up to this point. He hasn't tried to draw many conclusions from it, but now he wants to pull some ideas together and start building towards his larger project and say more concretely what the two hemispheres represent. And what they represent, according to him, is two coherent but incompatible aspects of the world. They represent these aspects inside our consciousness in whatever way, you know, lets you sleep at night to imagine that. Uh, So after this, he moves in with a few general terms, such as that new experiences tend to engage the right hemisphere, but then once they're routine, they move to the left hemisphere. In the past, this was viewed as specialization in processing, that it didn't have anything to do with hemispheric vision on the world, but rather was just when you're learning something, it's in the right, and then once it's wrote, it moves over to the left. But in McGillicris says that there's another possibility, and that involves the nature of knowledge itself. He goes into a bit of a diatribe on the word know and how it can mean different things. In one sense of the word, you can know someone, you can have a feel for them, and that knowledge is based on your experience of them. It's hard to translate into words how you know someone for other people to understand. They really have to meet said person for them to know the person. And this is a way that we approach knowledge, that we approach knowing of other people particularly, but also of, of other things too. And he'll get into that in a minute, but it's a way of knowing that's personal, unique, and has to be experienced. And all of this is the right hemisphere's domain. Another kind of knowing is what he attributes more to the left hemisphere. And this is somewhat clinical. It's fact-based. It's you know your date of birth. It's your height. It's your blood type. Things that are fixed and impartial. And it's extremely important knowledge. It's certainly not inferior. It lets us you know do everything from build machines to do medicine, 
But it is that the left hemisphere has an affinity for this type of knowledge that is impersonal, fixed, certain, and disengaged. He then moves into music, uh, which isn't immediately clear, but it's something that's interesting because we engage with it as we would with human beings. That is, we impart music with human qualities and emotions and feel with it, unlike concepts, which we don't feel with. They're embedded in language, and we simply know them uh, in the left hemispheric way. And further, music doesn't symbolize something. It doesn't represent something else. Rather, it's a metaphor that transfers directly over into our unconscious mind. That's why we know music, usually, like we know another person. He agrees with those who argue that all knowledge is knowledge of distinction, if for no other reason that our senses respond to relative, not absolute values. What this means is that the base that we compare that we compare things to has a large effect on how we interpret things. Uh, to quote, our first leap determines where we land, end quote. Thus, if we take something like a left hemispheric model for everything, machines as models f- for people, then when we analyze them, we'll find more machines. To a man with a hammer, everything is a nail, etc. He then transitions to talking about language and its nature, as it mediates most of what we know about the world, including this podcast. Uh, Language is the province of both hemispheres, but it has different meanings in each one. It functions differently. Historically, the left hemisphere has been associated with language. We have Brock's area that, that mediates speech, as well as all the evidence from the previous chapters talking about how the left hemisphere works particularly with spoken language. The expansion of the left hemisphere to accommodate language functions is also an assumption that is made. Ian McGillchrist, however, brings up research that suggests that the expansion of the left hemisphere was not for language as has been thought for a long time. The timing of the expansion, as far as the development of human goes, is off. We don't have any record or indication that language existed. The expansion predates language. And further, the left hemisphere, right hemisphere, and the expansion of the left hemisphere exists in other animals further up the fossil line that do not, or uh, rather the evolutionary chain, that also do not have language. Plus, as we know, language is not an exclusive left hemisphere function. Humor, irony, and emotion are all served by the right hemisphere. So he makes a metaphor or a comparison, which is that the right hemisphere paints the picture, but it's the left hemisphere that holds the paint box, the symbols, the tools, as it were. So if that's the case, then what is the expansion of the left hemisphere for, uh, you know, to uh, of the areas that are assumed to accom- that do accommodate language in our in current human brains, but did not originally appear for that purpose. Some people have argued that it has to do with tool making, but that seems to be incorrect because the left didn't actually expand. It's a twist. Rather, it inhibited expansion of comparable areas on the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere expansion that led it to house language was not caused by language then. It was epiphenomenal of something else. At this point, he goes into the origin of language and where it comes from. And the option that he wants to consider primarily is music. On this opinion, there are three options when it comes to their relationship. Uh, One is that it's a more or less pointless spinoff off of language. Uh, There are those who think that language comes from music. And that there are, and there are those who think that language and music developed independently but parallel out of something called amusa language, just a combination of music and language. Uh, and McGilchrist says basically two and three are the same thing. And he argues for this option that language is a spinoff of music rather than the other way around. And there are some indications that would make us think this is true. Newborns, when they speak, they don't use words but rather 
prosody, which is the music of speech. Mothers and fathers adjust the way that they talk to communicate, even when the words are not understandable, and the tone, the rhythm, the movement of the words is what communicates the information to the baby. Further, newborns can recognize mother's voices as well as their mother tongue, their language, and none of this has to do with the left hemisphere, but is instead activating the pattern recognition areas of the right hemisphere. So to go to music. So McGilchrist argues that music is the communication of emotion, which comes before language, a fun phrase that he says that is an interesting rule of thumb, but not always accurate, is that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, which is just to say that the development of creatures over time to their fully realized states replicates their evolution. So music existed further up the chain than language did. Thus, newborns have music before they have uh, language, or at least prosody. It's a fun thing to say, uh, to shut people up. So some people don't like this and don't see music as enough of a evolutionary advantage to justify this argument. And this view is reflected by modern society, or it might be said, modern society informs this view that music is secondary because it doesn't have a central place in life and culture like it used to. In many cases, it has become a solitary and individual activity, at least relative to one to what it once was. And what it once was is something that is forgotten in many of these conversations. However, it is also undeniable that music binds people together, literally makes a shared experience across numerous brains at the same time. And if music comes first, it also explains why poetry came before prose, because poetry relies on prosody in addition to the words themselves, whereas prose is merely the words themselves. So, McGilchrist concludes, music and the right hemisphere came first and prompted social cohesion. However, the rise of the written word has led to music being effectively marginalized relative to its previous position. And it's hard to imagine in our modern culture music being complex enough to make social things happen. But to think this is to forget about the complex social arrangements of whales, dolphins, various monkeys and apes, which all use various kinds of musical languages of pitch, tone, and timing in order to communicate extremely complex social systems. Prelingual children also communicate well enough, if not completely clearly. And again, they don't use language. Further, it's also likely that musical language works alongside gestures, and grooming, and some isolated tribes offer evidence to that very fact. So all said, it's possible music started to lose its center position when groups became too big to groom, when you couldn't physically communicate with everyone at once. Nonverbal communication became harder, and thus language, which is fixed and objective left hemisphere, becomes the easier method to communicate to large groups of people. Regardless, McGilchrist wants to emphasize that music communication is different than language communication because it speaks to us and not about things. It has an I-thou existence, not an I-it existence. It doesn't refer to third parties. It only refers to itself and the listener. So then does McGilchrist think that language is unnecessary? No, it's not unnecessary. However, it does have somewhat of a privileged position in that uh, many people have argued that thought is impossible without language, or at least that might be an assumption that people would have. So then McGilchrist goes into the idea of thought without language, which is hard to imagine. And he goes at the issue a few different ways. First, he lists uh, a bunch of inventions and concepts that appeared as images or um, essentially were given rise to without complex work via language, such as the periodic table. Yeah, of course, this is a one-off. It's not the, it's not the best argument, 
But what's more important is to establish that concepts are pre-language, and so therefore is thought. Animals, for example, can categorize things without language. They can categorize predators in the natural habitats, and when experimented on, they can also categorize things like art styles. The theory of mind, which we've mentioned in previous chapters, is intact to people who have lost language. So there are things happening, even though words are not present. We also have evidence from people who have suffered from temporary aphasia, which is the loss of the ability to speak. Uh, he tells a story of a man who ironically studied aphasia, uh, who then wrote about his experience afterwards when he got his words back. And in this man's account, the thoughts existed but the words simply could not appear. The, the mediator to the outside world, was uh, he was unable to manifest it. Furthermore, math is not dependent on language, or at least math up to a certain level. Uh, he talks about some peoples and groups without complex language for math, but can still succeed in solving problems, again, up to a point. He mentions a case where a group had uh, numbers in their language only up to three, but could solve problems involving numbers up to 80. So in short, he's making an argument against the strong view of language that puts all of our cognition at the feet of language and by extension at the left at the left hemp map. In short, he's making uh, wow. <clears throat> in that's short, the problem with reading. Yeah, that's the problem with reading. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> um, in short, he's making an expanded argument against the strong case for language that language is necessary for all thought and is and mediates all thought and therefore must be mediated by the left hemisphere. That's not to say that language isn't powerful. It can influence our perceptions. It can mess with how we perceive colors. It can make new boundaries between colors, how we view faces. It sets the categories into which we put things in, bringing some things forward into our consciousness and letting others recede. However, it's not necessary for categorization, nor reasoning, nor concept formation, nor perception. It does impart permanence to all these things, but the concept itself is not dependent on language, which is the important point. So if language isn't technically essential, then why language? In addition to the points that we talked about above uh, in terms of group size and the reliance of music and gestures together to communicate in uh, earlier societies, groups, uh, he looks at the connection between the hand and speech. And the brain skills that move the right hand, controlled by the left hemisphere, are extremely similar to those that support speech. And so he suggests, sort of also going back to the gestures, that it's possible that referential language actually arose from gestures, and particularly those to do with grasping. The actions of grasping, of taking things, both physically and mentally, abstracting them and pulling them from their context, all of this is left hemisphere activity. The act of manipulation, taking handfuls of what we need and for our use, is, again, the left hemisphere. So this is a partial answer to the function of the left hemisphere's expansion. Rather than language, the grasping is the reason, and language simply moved in to fill the space later on. Further, activity of manipulation, so using tools, grasping things, no matter which hand, always involves the left hemisphere, whereas the right hemisphere is associated with exploring motions, again, not mattering which hand. Naming things brings fixity and the ability to manipulate. The left hemisphere uses words to create a representative world offline, distinct from experience that can be explored and re-explored and, and manipulated to uh, various purposes, which of course is great and entirely necessary and built our civilization as we know it, but also tends to lose the picture as a whole. Uh, and at this point, I ran out of time to summarize. 
So I believe I am passing it on to Stephen for the next section. Indeed you are. So at this point, uh, McGilchrist wants to go over to some of the domains uh, that the right still has over language, uh, the primary one being metaphor. Uh, he also mentions humor being another one. Uh, he starts out, ironically enough, or appropriately enough, I suppose, with a metaphor that metaphor is like money. Um, it is only an intermediary, but like money, it takes on some of the life of the thing it represents. Um, he notes very carefully that this is the domain of the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere doesn't really understand metaphor or humor or any of the uh, less direct ways that language can contain meaning. Uh, he argues that metaphor is that which links language to life. Uh, the only way in which understanding can reach outside of the system of science to life itself, um, that you can't have a set of symbols in your head that are pure abstraction. They have to eventually link to something, uh, which I think makes a lot of sense. Even uh, our most abstract set of symbols, probably that of math, eventually boils down to something that we can at least somewhat comprehend. For example, you know, two. Well, we see two things all the time, two apples or what have you. Um, and I think this is an important point that the right allows us to kind of keep going. Or, or it, it, this is an, an important point that the right allows us to um, to comprehend. Uh, he notes somewhat uh, humorously that uh, metaphor carries us across a gap that language itself has created. Uh, so uh, much like another amusing note that he has, uh, that philosophy uh, helps solve the problems that philosophy itself creates. Uh, metaphor does the same. Uh, he notes that metaphor is the thing that kind of draws two entities together um, and that neither neither may remain the same. That uh, he quotes Max Black, quote, if to call a man a wolf is to put him in a special light, we must not forget that the metaphor makes the wolf seem more human than he otherwise would, end quote. He, uh, he also notes, uh, he, he quotes a, another philosopher um, whose name I unfortunately, oh no, uh, he quotes uh, Bruno Snell as well in saying, quote, uh, thus, it is not quite correct to say that the rock is viewed anthropomorphically, unless we add that our understanding of rock is anthropomorphic for the same reason that we are able to look at ourselves petromorphically. Man must listen to an echo of himself before he may hear or know himself. Uh, so ultimately, what, what he's playing at is that metaphor is what embodies and what embodies thought and places it inside a living context. It's what keeps it from being a pure abstraction. Uh, any one thing can be understood only in relation to another. And ultimately, those all those relationships have to be tied down to something that is experienced, which is, as we'll all remember, as I'm sure will be hammered into us many more times before this book is over, is the domain of the right brain. The left brain is that, which is abstraction. Uh, where the right hemisphere can see that metaphor is the only way to preserve the link between language and the world it refers to, uh, he notes that the left experience, the left hemisphere sees it as a lie. Uh, he quotes Locke um, in expressing typical enlightenment disdain, uh, calling metaphors perfect cheats. Um, it also sees them as a distracting ornament and connotation as limitation, um, since the interest of the left hemisphere is that which is a single meaning. Uh, recall a previous study which showed that the left hemisphere, when trying to uh, come up with similar words, will select very few synonyms that have high connotations, whereas the right brain is a lot more okay with uh, presenting a list of words that have much lower connotations, but still some loose association. The left really likes a single meaning. Uh, he moves on, uh, Brevin already briefly uh, discussed um, the idea of language as grasping, uh, but 
McGilchrist draw this out, draws this out a little bit more in uh, saying that language is itself still rooted in the body, uh, that its experiential nature has not yet been completely lost. Um, he argues that the way that we learn language is imitation, uh, which is completely opposed to uh, Chomsky's theory of universal grammar, which argues that analytical language is hardwired into the brain. Now, it's, of course, not like English is hardwired into the brain or Chinese or Hindi, or what have you, but just the uh, the grammar itself, the idea of syntax, hardwired into the brain. Uh, but McGilchrist argues quite compellingly that uh, language is not an abstraction from life, it is an extension of life, uh, that we learn uh, through, in, um, uh, through imitation. Uh, he quotes Wittgenstein, uh, to imagine a language means to imagine a form of life, end quote. Uh, it's not a virtual representation of life, but a form. Uh, he notes that a child does not acquire a skill of language any more than a skill of life by learning rules or what have you, but by imitation, a form of empathic identification, usually with his or her parents. Uh, but imitation is an attempt to be like, uh, this is this is quoting uh, Michael Crest, by the way, uh, but imitation is an attempt to be like in the sense of experiencing what it is like to be another person. And what it is like to be that person is something that can be experienced only from the inside, as it were. Uh, we, he, he, he ponders if this is how language itself began, uh, musical language with its I-thou uh, relationship, this attempt to be in the body of another, to inhabit the body of the other, to truly experience uh, what it is to be that other person. Uh, he goes on a, a bit of an interesting aside uh, with some sub-Saharan African tribes that have a very unique form of communication. They all have different spoken languages, but they communicate with each other uh, over long distances, even via drums and dance. And that dance itself communicates not just simple notions or what have you, but actually completely uh, very complex ideas are, are being communicated uh, between the people groups. And it's suspected that this is something that uh, that musical language would have been able to accomplish on a broad level. He notes that our experiences in language and communication still even now uh, are experiential. That uh, when I'm talking with a friend who has a particular tick uh, or a particular speech pattern or even a stammer at times, we will pick up on that and incorporate it into our own form of speaking. I recall myself having a piano teacher that had a stammer and I started picking up on it after having him for about a year or so, I would start stammering at times, especially when I got excited, which was the the way he went about his communication. Whenever he got really passionate about something, he would start stammering, uh, which I, I've always wondered about. And apparently that is a common experience. Uh, he quotes, the, the flight of language from the enchantment of the body during the last hundred years represents part of a much broader revolt of the left hemisphere's way of conceiving the world against that of the right hemisphere. Uh, end quote. And he, he promises that he'll go on to uh, more of this in part two. Uh, ultimately, language is a hybrid. It evolved from music. And in this, if he's correct, it evolved from music. And in this part of its history, it represents the urge to communicate. And to the extent that it retains right hemispheric or right hemisphere empathic elements, it still does. Its foundations lie in the body and the world of experience. But referential language did not originate in a drive to communicate. And from this point of view, represents something of a hijack. It has done everything it can to repudiate both its bodily origins and its dependency on experience to become a world unto itself. Uh, call back to Chomsky's uh, point of view, language is pure abstraction. Uh, language itself developed in its current form to enable us to refer to whatever is not present in experience, 
language helps its representation, not its presentation, ultimately falling into the purview of the left hemisphere. So McGilchrist ultimately is arguing that language is indeed the purview of the left hemisphere. It wasn't always, though. Uh, and there are still elements of language that are part of the right hemisphere or that are in the purview of the left hemisphere, namely metaphor and the parts of language that are, are rooted in experience. And on to Sam. Yeah, so I have the last couple sections of this chapter, and my summary will be quite a bit shorter than your guys' just because there's not as much material here. Um, so first he talks about the, the right frontal expansion. He spent the entire chapter three talking about mostly about the left hemisphere and why it's expanded in a certain way and the relevance of language or the, the irrelevance of language. But then he talks about what the right frontal or what, what the right frontal hemisphere is useful for. And the main thing that it's useful for is connection, connecting people together and eventually building, being able to build up tight-knit societies. And so he points out that that's how we have civilization is through or through these connections between people. Um, now, this isn't the first time he's talked about the right hemisphere. Obviously, he's talked about it throughout the last few chapters, and it's pretty clear that McGillicrest is very much in favor of the right hemisphere being the leader and almost a more important hemisphere, um, as far as I can tell from his argument. But he asks why we put so much focus on the left hemisphere um, and even declared the left hemisphere to be the smarter hemisphere instead of focusing on the right. His conclusion to this is that maybe it's because we're trying to explain the left hemisphere through science. We're trying to look at the brain through a scientific lens and articulate it through language, which will naturally gravitate towards the left hemisphere, which understands things by breaking them down. Um, regardless, he talks about how um, humans differ from animals and how most people, when they point out the ways that humans differ from animals, they'll say that we... Um, that we can reason and that we have language. But as he's shown throughout this chapter, both those things are false. Animals have means of communication that are actually quite complicated, and they can do deductive reasoning. Um, it's on a far simpler scale than humans, but they still do it. However, the things that really do differentiate us from animals um, are all housed in the right hemisphere. Those things like music, um, poetry, art, more our, our moral sense all of this is housed in the right hemisphere so then going on to his conclusion um he wraps up this chapter by pointing out by saying that these are two contradictory ways of seeing the world both are happening in the brain um in each or in their individual hemispheres he again asks why is it that the right is seen as inferior um and talks a bit more about the scientific explanation about how the scientific project is naturally skewed towards the left hemisphere and then gives some examples of different famous neuroscientists who have all viciously, I would say, attacked the right hemisphere as being inferior, as being as having grossly lower cognition. One went so far as to say that the right hemisphere alone is probably less intelligent than a chimpanzee. Um, and so you, you see this, this bias in the literature consistently against the right hemisphere. Um, and he's asked, and he's continuing to prod at this question that he's been looking at <clears throat> throughout the first couple chapters, even going back to the introduction. Why is this? And why is it that we can consistently put down the right hemisphere? Um, his last scientific explanation that he makes that may be able to answer this is the fact that with, with, these hemisphere, with the hemisphere interaction, it appears more like the left hemisphere inhibits the right. Not that the left hemisphere has necessarily overtaken it, but that it is simply interfering with the right's process 
and therefore being um, the lead in these situations. Um, and so that's where he, he basically concludes the chapter, is he's saying that the left hemisphere is constraining the right. So what actually is the purpose of these two? What's the order they should be in? And how has that gone awry? That's it. Yeah, his uh, his noting on uh, concerning the left hemisphere, right hemisphere uh, interaction of left inhibiting, it was fascinating for him to note handedness in that those of us that are right-handed, myself included, it's not necessarily that our right hand is so much stronger because our le- the, the part of the brain controlling the right hand is so much stronger. It's more of just a phenomenon that the left hand is weaker. So like necessarily, obviously, the right hand is stronger, but it's not as though uh, if you compare it to somebody who has, uh, uh, what's the, the phrase for it, who has uh, equal use of both hands. Ambidextrous. Ambidextrous, thank you. Uh, it's not as though their right hands are weaker, it's more than just their their left hands are stronger. So there was kind of this rather depressing moment of, oh, it's not like my right hand is great, it's just my left hand sucks because my left brain is actively inhibiting the right brain. It's seriously the goddamn left brain. Like, how do we think it was our friend? This whole time it's been it's the a, villain. It's a freaking tool. Well, uh, well that said, it, it uses tools. Ah, uh, touche. Uh, it, I, I did appreciate McGillicris kind of in each chapter, he has added at least a little bit, bit of a nuance towards the end uh, where he says, uh, in, in this particular case, the left brain is the master's most valued emissary. He's It's his most trusted servant. The problem is the left brain is also a bit of a wily fellow who doesn't understand what the right brain's purposes are and keeps thinking that it should be taking more and more control. But I do like how he does note that the left brain is really important. We shouldn't just want to get a left brain lobotomy or get a stroke on the left side of our, our brain. Uh, but it's still, it needs to be, it is an excellent servant. It is a terrible master. Yeah, I really liked in this chapter, the discussion of language in general, just a, a seamlessly transition from whatever you were talking about, Stephen. Uh, <laughs> um, just because I, I'd heard sort of the discussion between music and language before, but I think he lays it out in a pretty, con- in a pretty comprehensive way. Um, I would be curious though, and maybe at some point I'll, bother asking one of my several linguistic either adjacent or actually studied li- linguistic friends and see what their take on this whole thing is because he i guess i just have no idea because he wrote this what 2009 i have no idea if the linguistic literature is in concert with this if it's pretty deviant if it's just asking entirely different questions i don't know nothing about linguistics but i think that would be an interesting place to uh see how he lines up relative to other people yeah unfortunately the only thing i know about uh chomsky or the, the chomsky language is from an upper level theoretical computer science class where there's a thing called chomsky normal form which is a certain kind of language that is sort of kind of compilable and you can actually like write a fair amount of code it's not it's not the level of Turing complete from what I understand, which means uh, the basis of computation that our computers use now. It's like the kind of the tier below it. Uh, and before that would be a deterministic finite automata. Uh, all of these terms, I vaguely recall what they mean. Unfortunately, at this point, I don't really recall anything else. But all that to say, uh, all that to say uh, a Chomsky grammar is a very abstract concept that would definitely not be related to any uh, sort of uh, reality as such. It could just be mapped to a set of arbitrary symbols. Mm. Uh, mm. Well, this 
considering none of us are linguists, um, I'm guessing this is a dead end. So Sam, talk about music. Okay, music. You know, I actually didn't write out any thoughts about music, but I was just going to talk about it. There's this one bit where he said that music is the communication of emotions, page 103. And I think that that is absolutely true. And I thought this is true for a long time. Is that, and and I've I've been trying to figure out why I think it's true. Um, Also, I think I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but for the listeners who don't know, I, I, I studied classical piano for about 12 years. Um, and so it, it kind of getting into the theory of it and uh, at a level where I was kind of having conversations with my teacher about like, what is the meaning of music and why, why is music so emotionally important to humans? And for the longest time, I, I couldn't figure it out, but he articulates it very nicely on page 97, where he says that our knowledge arises from distinctions and relationships between things. And it's, and that, He's making the argument for the right hemisphere. But what I was thinking is that in and of itself is relational. Each note only makes sense in context of the other notes. And the meaning can even be changed. One note's meaning can even be changed if the notes surrounding it are different. And so I guess like to kind of build off of his point, not only is music right brain centric, but it's almost like music is the perfect embodiment of what it means to live in a... in the right brain world, where its meaning cannot be articulated except for the whole, um, yet it can articulate a deep amount of um, uh, of significant emotions um, that drive people to act, but it doesn't necessarily do it in a, um, I don't know, in a consistent way. It's not formulaic. You can break it down to formulas, but at the end of the day, those formulas create something that is more than the sum of their parts. Um, you can take music theory and you can apply the proper chord progression, but just writing out those chords on the sheet of paper is not emotionally impactful or anything to anyone, as far as I know. It's actually playing that and hearing it where you where you experience the emotion. Is that going way too far into the weeds? Or no, I, I think that's no, I think that's well said. Um, I and I yeah. I think he was trying to keep at least moderately scientifically objective and saving, as it were, kind of some of the good stuff for part two, where he's going to go more into a cultural analysis of all his findings. Uh, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that he explores more of what you've been saying, because I think you're right. And I, I think of music, but also art as almost, I, I, again, kind of this, these more experiential ways of communication where language inevitably falls short. When I try to describe a piece of music or a piece of cinematography or a piece of art. When I tried to describe why it was meaningful to me, I can generally, I can describe part of it. I can say like, well, it, you know, it's minor key tonality made me feel sad, but that, that doesn't encapsulate it. I can't, no. I can't exactly why explain why if it made me feel sad or hopeful or joyous or contemplative or what have you, it just communicated directly to me. And I think there really is something important about that, that there's only, there's something important about the fact that language can't encapsulate it, that at when there comes a point where one must just fall silent before it, as the right hemisphere does, the, the right hemisphere, the silent hemisphere, it is silent before, before the experience. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, this is where I always, I always knew I enjoyed Rousseau somewhere. And I, I liked how he gave it a little call out where he's like, well, actually, Rousseau is one of the philosophers who always said that music came first. So that was nice. That was nice to hear. Um, but yeah, and then he he developed the thought about how like music brings meaning to you through 
thinking without language. And I think it's 107 when he's talking about how all of our, like our, our right brain, um, not mechanisms, because that's a left brain way of thinking about it, but like imagination and spirituality and all these things that are generally housed in the right brain don't really have much language associated with them. And I immediately thought back to um, attending a religious service in a different language um, where like I've attended uh, masses, uh, several in Latin and then one in Italian, um, which I know even less of than Latin. I can kind of fumble through in Latin, but Italian, I know almost none. And yet in both of those circumstances, I understood what was going on based just based off of the the contextual cues and i guess the the full body of it is it wasn't just the um the meaning was not just in the words um i guess that's what i'm saying from that 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 actually makes me me think uh, i recall when i went to uh, spring arbor they always had this uh, concert called hanging of the greens which was this christmas concert uh and it was a whole evening Part of it was a concert, and then you go and uh, SAU would serve to the community various, you know, holiday uh, treats and, you know, hot cider and uh, all sorts, you know, wassail and and cookies and Santa would be there and there'd be fireworks and it was it was honestly this this lovely event. It was always something I, I looked forward to uh, deeply. And I recall it was in one of these concerts where they played several songs in Latin that I just explicitly I, I don't know Latin and therefore. I just had to sit back and enjoy the beauty of it. And it did not in any way inhibit the impression of awe and wonder that was set before me. In fact, they put lyric translations up on the screen. And if anything, those translations somehow took away from uh, it, it took away, like almost removing the mystery and kind of giving me this more cold language that could tell me facts about what was being sung. But honestly, the uh yet yeah, the simply the experience of listening to the song in latin was more than enough to to communicate awe and wonder before the birth of christ yeah yeah i mean that's, yeah <laughs> yep. the uh just another reason why that we shouldn't have taught the peasants god damn it it's so it's even more true now than it ever has been <laughs> it would have been better off reading was such a mistake god damn um no uh, so, my vernaculars yeah follows yeah what yeah. what so much of this chapter I think really emphasized was just I think the both the power of music in general, but also the potentiality of musical language. And I'm and I'm just you know I can be a cynical person, so like were I to say before reading this book, I probably would say something like music is probably an offshoot of language, and you know it's it's the evolutionary advantage is is not clear whatsoever i mean if you specifically asked me that uh but this i think really revealed the potential of music musical language um and how deep rooted it is i mean just music as metaphor and it being a i vow communication that doesn't refer to a- abstraction to abstract concepts and i wonder if he's going to take this to expand it to art in in general and particularly abstract art, which if you apply the same logic that you might be applying to music, music that is that is intentionally conceptual. So we made a joke about 433 uh, earlier. That is, I mean, from this perspective, anti-music in a way, just as abstract art, if we continue the metaphor, who knows if it'll mm-hmm. go here, might be considered anti-art because it doesn't, it starts with a concept and ends with a concept. It doesn't 
its its abstractness doesn't allow an experience to properly manifest. So it requires explanation, or it requires the type of uh, analysis that only the left brain can do, and so destroys the experience that art is meant to be the the mutual experience that art is meant to be uh, fomenting. That's so interesting to think about. Like, I mean, I've been like I'm thinking of visiting the museum or I did visit the Museum of Modern Art in, in New York, primarily to see the Van Gogh collection, which is spectacular. But uh, all the other exhibits were, were wacky. And um, and yeah, and I, I did find that the only way that they really had much meaning was when you read the plaque. Like there would be this tall, you know, cone, tall golden cone that was slightly bent. And I'm trying to figure out what this is supposed to be. And then the... Um, card is a bird in flight and i'm like okay i kind of see it i guess that's interesting but it only makes sense once you have that data that hard linguistic data to associate to to clarify the conceptual which is i mean that's that's extremely left brain that is you need you need a language to be able to mediate the meaning yes whereas looking at Van Gogh, you don't need that. You, nobody yeah, yeah. is wondering what he is trying to communicate. Well, that's the thing. No, but like but we don't... can't explain what he's trying to communicate. We, like using words, it is difficult to say what the Mona Lisa means. I know that's not Van Gogh for the record. Um, but like none of us are going to debate that it's not beautiful or that no, there exactly. isn't some, something inherently meaningful about it. Yeah, and I mean, his art, it's, you know, it's, it's got its own form of abstraction, but like we're downstairs and looking at these pieces of art and i mean in my opinion some junk that just didn't make any sense and then we walk upstairs and see this you know starry night um Ooh. and and i i we my girlfriend and i were there and we stood looking at it for probably 10 minutes just in silence because it's beautiful and we didn't need to read the plaque on it we didn't need to know much and and, and the context of his story brings more meaning but you don't need that to appreciate the art i also yeah no yeah um, this is also interesting because it's very much a different angle at this question because, you know, sophomoric conversations about what is art? Isn't, doesn't modern art suck? And then, you know, of course, the people are like, no, it's great, blah, blah, blah. Here are the reasons why. And it's like, no, but it's not like old art. Everything should be an icon. That's what the cool people say. And then the other people you know, say, 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 say other stuff. But this is such a it's, – it's, it's very much a different lens to look at art. Um, and I, I mean – I don't want to say the evolutionary purpose of art, but maybe art at its maximalist impact is a particular kind of art that, you know, doesn't use abstraction, that doesn't use left brain stuff um, in order to communicate its meaning. And that's just, that's a different kind of argument than one that relies on aesthetic preferences or tradition. It's just yeah. a it's a different frame. It's almost like a more, it's, it's almost like this argument that we're having here is a, um, what would I say? Like, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to phrase this right, but it's like a more concrete, a more understandable, more objectifiable, uh, even way of understanding art, which is left brain. Like the way that we're talking about it is, oh, the, the less um, concrete language you need and the more abstraction the greater the um, the quality of the art, but that's a linear equation. Hmm. They were breaking it down to even some of the parts, uh, some of its parts in that. Yeah, but, I, I don't actually buy that. Well, no. oh, I, I recall having a, a discussion with some friends over kind of the nature of art and aesthetics, and there was did you almost, figure it out. Did you? We we cracked it, guys. We did it. 
Um, but we, I think we all kind of ended up saying something to the effect of before uh, the best kind of art is that which you, you really can't explain why it hits you. And kind of when you get down to a lot of the modern and postmodern art, having, having to give an explanation for why it's meaningful, you can, but that, that almost robs it of that, that almost disenchants it, uh, of whatever, whatever thing it had, the more, the more language you apply to it, the more explanation you apply to it the more you rob it of any enchantment that it may have and kind of a lot of the the more postmodern art it requires you to do that so it almost disenchants itself um it's cut itself or it's cut the ground out from under it hmm. well uh, I, I honestly did not expect this to go in this direction but yeah, i'm no, happy uh, we did i i i i like this direction uh, but people, i am oh sorry Go ahead. Oh, just I'm I'm so looking forward to to part two where he really dives into this. I mean, it was fascinating hearing his arguments for why music came first. Um, the whole uh, argue or he he trace him tracing out how humanity had the muscular and nervous capability of speaking, but or like I think a hundred thousand years or more before any sort of records indicate that they were able to speak. And him, him are using that as a very compelling case for why music came first. Uh, and also responding in a very, I think, funny way uh, uh, to accusations that, that music is, is pretty much the uh, speech equivalent of pornography. That like all it does is give us you know, a quick dopamine boost, uh, boost and him rolling his eyes and say like, well, yeah, but you could say that about anything that like if you if you enjoy seeing your loved ones, it gives you a dopamine boost. Or if you want to avoid getting mugged in the street, well, that's because you want to avoid the serotonin boost or whatever. Like him, him kind of rolling his eyes like that. I thought that was fascinating him getting into the science of it. But man, am I looking forward to part two where he gets more into the cultural commentary of it. I think he's going to have a lot to say. Indeed. And I'm sure there there will be a lot of stuff that we like. But unfortunately, not everything. We're going to slow it down when we get to the second part. Guys, let me do my transition. Sorry. I am sure there will be a lot of things that we will like, but unfortunately, not we can't like everything that we find. Let's go to rants, which are things we don't like. See how see how seamless that was. Do you see? Wait, a are we are we not are we not doing article? Oh, I forgot you have an article. I uh, for some reason that was I, an impressive transition. Thank you, Brevin, for that beautiful transition. Uh, We're just stick in with the that wrong one. direction. In the wrong yep, direction. In the absolutely wrong direction. God Speaking of things we don't like, Joshua Gibbs of the Circe Institute, Institute, May 27th, 2020, wrote the article, Soul-Crushing, Family-Friendly, Inspirational Trash. He did not like the movie Tomorrowland, and he will tell you why, and I will tell you on behalf of him. Uh, the interactions between Christians and the film industry, especially conservative Christians, is generally a tense one at best, uh, most of the time due to what is, in my opinion, nonsense. I myself recall quite a lot of cringy outrage at the Harry Potter, Harry Potter movies for the magic system or the Golden Compass for its anti-religious sentiments or any number of movies for the more graphical, graphic violence, sexual content, obscenity, etc. It's a rare treat that the beef in this article was not with a movie over its graphic sexual content, nor its gratuitous violence, nor its anti-religious sen- sentiments, but rather its philosophical banality. Uh, as I mentioned, Josh Gibbs was not happy with Tomorrowland. With a message he describes charitably as banal and dull uh, of... The world needs dreamers. Uh, Tomorrowland inundates its viewers with philosophical claptrap that at best raises one to kitschy sentimentality. As he mulls over the decision-making process of which movies to allow his young children to watch, he notices that, 
quote, a great many Christian parents choose films for their children based on ratings alone and assume, like I did, that nothing all, uh, sorry, that nothing all that awful, scarring, degrading, or disgusting will transpire in a film rated PG. Whether or not a film will ennoble young viewers and charge them with virtuous purpose is beside the point, at least when that point is entertainment, end quote. He reaches the startling conclusion that, quote, there's no kind of film I trust less than a PG rated film. There's no film more likely to be philosophically cancerous than a PG-rated film, at least one made in the last 20 years. Almost all of the intellectually coherent, theologically compelling, artistically moving films that have been released since the turn of the century have been rated R, end quote. With an interesting aside in which he discusses the benefits of censorship a la Hayes Code, which listeners may recall us discussing in a previous episode in which we discussed uh, a David Bentley Hart article about censorship, he moves on to the overall frustration he feels with a culture that seems determined to inundate children with all that is brash, gaudy, zany, convulsive, spasmodic, and garish. He notes that the golden standard for children's literature, The Wind in the Willows, written a little more than 100 years ago, would these days be thought far over the head of, heads of adults, much less children. It must be asked. Why does our society view children with such contempt? And I think that, if I'm being honest, I partially agree. While I have some very fond memories of the zany slapstick comedy of Ed and Nettie, Codename Kids Next Door, SpongeBob, or even the better classic cartoons like Tom and Jerry, Roadrunner, and Wile E. Coyote, Bugs Bunny, and Daffy Duck, when I look at it, to be honest, it's tripe designed to push forth the basest parts of ourselves. It really must be questioned what good is brought about by cartoons that actively encourage children to never grow up. That is a common theme throughout all modern cartoons. Growing up sucks. Don't do it. Don't be mature. Stay young, etc., etc. Uh, that's not to say that there's complete cause for despair. Look at the recent re-release of Avatar The Last Airbender on Netflix, and you'll find its fan base ever-growing. Here is a, mostly, mature children's story filled with interesting, complex characters, a rich, well-built world, and a compelling plotline, as well as some honestly thoughtful and insightful messages and morals that can be derived. Look at The Clone Wars with its robust understanding of tragedy, or Rebels with its compelling characters and genuinely moving moments, its firm grasp of the nature of loss and loyalty, hope and sacrifice. But I would contend that these are the exception, not the rule. And even so, these really don't hold much when compared to the classics such as The Wind in the Willows or The Little Prince. C.S. Lewis wrote that, quote, a children's story that can only be enjoyed by children is not a good children's story in the slightest, end quote. And here I agree completely. I recall being swept away by The Wind in the Willows at the age of 26. It's a masterful piece that all may enjoy. And while I don't think the answer is necessarily to purge ourselves of Spongebob or whatever other cartoons the young are into these days, I concur in Gibbs in wondering what good they'll actually do us. And that's, that, that's, that's my article. Uh, more, more arguments for censorship. I guess um, it sounds like my first ever rant on this show, which was about Disney. I'm trying to recall. It's been it's been a year and a half. Care to care to yeah. bring a refresher? <laughs> well, no, I, I vaguely do, to be fair. But about how well is that Disney and the experience of the um, of the Disney parks, um, which which is a um, a popular family vacation destination of, of my family's. Um, the experience of the park is trying to kind of cut between that is. It's got is that there are children. I mean, they're they produce children's entertainment, but the experience is trying to draw meaning out of that and draw the significance and continuity and world um, and magic and all that out of these stories. And I think that they're fine. I think that Disney, on average, is probably a bit better than many of the other studios out there um, in terms of quality of messaging. Etc. But I think that, and I think that the parks are are sometimes an enjoyable vacation spot, an enjoyable theme park. But 
trying to find some kind of transcendent meaning out of that um, is, I think, vapid or, or I would go even so far as stay disgusting. So it's it's a strange catch twenty two because I I've thought about both my upbringing and, and then the theoretical upbringing of uh, of children if ever I, I should have any and there is there there's certainly a, a, a tight uh, balance to walk because on the one hand you don't want to deprive your children of you know just being kids and having fun and not necessarily needing needing to uh, find transcendence wherever they go and in every story sometimes you just you know you're a kid you want to watch some slapstick comedy or, or what have you. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Or you want to go to Disney World and you see Mickey Mickey Mouse and Goofy and you just want to have fun with that. And there's no need for anything else that's all that crazy. But at the same time, there is kind of this this strange question of like, is that actually the best way to raise children? Is there, maybe we're doing them a disservice and and they should be able to grasp at the transcendent even from a young age, which... I say as a man who has no children and has no idea what being a parent is like. So at this point, that's just armchair philosophizing. But I still, I think that this article raises some in- interesting questions around that the, the nature of that. Yeah, I mean, we're asking, we're three guys, none mm-hmm. of us with kids or anywhere close to having kids as far as I know. Um, and therefore, trying to figure out how to parent properly is... Um, a little difficult certainly i i'm curious what what are you guys thoughts on around the haze code he meant he mentioned that and i it, i didn't really concentrate on it given given that we did um somewhat go over that with uh, david bentley hart but there is this idea that the haze code while limiting movies in the content that they could uh they could show it also it provided directors with a challenge i actually looked it up and apparently a there was one director in particular who said that like this forced us to be cunning when presenting certain ideas or presenting certain facts or instances. If we wanted to show that two people were sleeping together, we had to be cunning about it. We had to simply communicate it by a closed door or something like that. And it ended with much better films. This is the director himself who was kind of irritated by the, by the code, but at the same time kind of grudgingly saying, this made us make better movies. I mean, and when the Hayes Code was around, oh, sorry, no, go for it. Oh, and and when the Hayes Code was around, this was in the 30s and 40s, which is considered the golden era of cinema. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it. If people wanted to communicate dark themes, difficult themes, you just had to be more subtle about it. You weren't able to do pornographic in multiple senses of the word displays of violence or sex or whatever you wanted to communicate where the there are a significant number of modern shows which purely depend on that aspect that they can attract you with gratuitous violence or gratuitous whatever you can put whatever you want here whether it's reality tv and gratuitous uh gratuitous attacks on human dignity um to yeah you know what i'm realizing i probably don't have have anything intelligent to say here beyond exactly what the thing already said, because I haven't seen enough old movies to um, talk about it. Intelligently. I mean, I recall seeing Casablanca, and it was one of the the best movies I described. And it still dealt with difficult issues. It dealt with Nazism. It dealt with infidelity. It, it, it dealt with these things, but did it in a classy, uplifting, or not not even uplifting. It just did it in a in a way in which the 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 idea was communicated, but the audience still felt 
edified not by the horrors but how they were treated how how the situation was overcome or maybe not even necessarily an edification was required but just the art itself was just better presented i i think of oh sorry sorry i had a thought and this is going to be a stretch but maybe it's because the golden age of cinema with that censorship managed to place more of an emphasis on the piece as a whole instead of the Mm -hmm. individual parts you know i I, as in classic cinema stimulates your right brain huh you know i i don't think i'm i'm ready to reject that i think that that would make a bit of sense in that well think of the the modern action movie which is little more than a uh plot that's just enough to suspend disbelief followed by action scene after action scene after action scene that the pieces themselves are cool but when you look at the the overall plot you just at best roll your eyes and say like yeah, it was it was over the top, but the action scenes were cool. Yeah, and like I mean, I even look back at at the Marvel movies, which are arguably not arguably they are the most successful, you know, recent movie franchise, and but they're all entirely self referential, um, mm-hmm. and that's I mean, especially the most recent ones where there's just these huge feats, <laughs> um, you know, but it only makes sense because it's all internally referencing itself, and because I'm sorry, I've got McGillicrest Crest on the mind. Because no, no pun intended, but um, <laughs> because you've got this, in, because they work because you have this entire context built up, and so the funny quips and the action and the explosions, some of the time, make sense because they're happening within a broader context and broader world. Hmm. But most action movies don't have that luxury, and so they just fall flat. Now, that's an interesting point. In, in so the argument would be seeing the you know, 26, what are we at? 28 now, whatever Marvel yeah. movies as an extended TV show where you might have a chance to get to know characters more. Uh, and so they're not just, you know, avatars purely for violence, but you actually have a, a, a chance to be with them longer than with a lot of movies. Uh, yeah. I can see that. You have an investment in the overall story and in the characters themselves rather than in simply the the cool action sequence wanting to see, you know, some bad guys beaten up, but nothing more than kind of the I'm rooting for the good guy because he's the good guy and I need to root for them and I'm rooting against the bad guys. But like those are kind of more abstractions, whereas you actually really do enjoy Captain America, you know, a la Captain America or qua Captain I- America, whatever the for latin for that is yeah it's almost gone to the point where instead of a block like the traditional model for the blockbuster over the last you know 30 years or whatever has been okay the story like as you were describing it a second ago the story is the framework that we're going to pack all these big huge action set pieces into and special effects in order to blow your mind so you'll buy a ticket Mm -hmm. um versus marvel may be the only one or one of the few i think that there are others i mean uh, inception comes to mind as one that does this really well but yeah marvel would be uh, is a franchise that manages to turn that around but now you're so invested in the characters and the context that they're within that now the action and the explosions and everything is just the the canvas onto which this broader story is painted see i i might be able to grant that but i i do just have to throw a plug because i for all the Marvel haters out there who have very legitimate grievances with oh yeah just like the utter uh, copy paste function of so many Marvel movies <laughs> and that the villain is literally just the inversion of the hero in like every single movie and entirely disposable with the with like two exceptions I'm raising uh, my hand right now uh so you know 
I'll 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 let that point stand, but I do just want to say, Marvel haters, you have legitimate grievances, and uh, you can be recognized. Uh, but speaking okay. of legitimate grievances, how's that? <laughs> Great. Wow. Give us a rant. Uh jeez, I had a. Uh, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get uh meta political. I'm not gonna get actually political. Uh, very firmly staying away from that crap. But I made the the unfortunate mistake of getting on Facebook, what, like a couple weeks ago, which was just the most unfortunate timing. And obviously there have been a lot of terrible things that have happened in the uh, the recent past. But I think one of the things I find uh, tragic is that this seems to uh, have been a point. Oh, all the, the terrible things that have happened seem to have been points in which we as Americans, um, we as a global community could have put differences aside, could have put politics aside, um, could have put kind of tribalism aside and said like, oh, this is clearly a problem. Let's let's fix this. Um, and it seems that people were very, very quick to, uh, I don't know, just jump to accusing uh, particular parties of, you know, wrongdoing rather than addressing the problem, uh, whether being super quick to, to denigrate all cops as being terrible villains or super quick uh, to defend all cops as uh, superheroes that clearly, you know, uh, you know, these communities were are we're just kind of asking for it. And it's just it's just kind of sad to see tribalism take take place that quick. And uh, so I I really do uh, kind of mourn for the fact that of all the times that we should be uniting as a country, this is the time that kind of we just quickly uh, fall apart. All right. Uh. Yep. 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 Not gonna comment. Sam, go. Yeah, I've got a slightly related rant. And this rant concerns the nature of a certain group or person running website called the Cleveland Street Preachers. And I saw this posted on um, also on social media, but it was posted more out of joke on a um, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox discussion page that I follow, which is actually great fun. But um, and they posted a video that was this man. This man had posted a video of himself standing in front of a Catholic church with a sign. Um, and it was titled something like, um, actually, let me get the title just to be exact here. Um, it was titled, I Really Offended Those Catholics. And so kind of everybody's joking about this on the page, like, wow, this is clearly not how you're supposed to do things and, you know, whatever. And I watched the video and it was, it was disturbing. And it was, I mean, it was basically just a guy standing out front, front yelling about how all the Catholics are going to hell and how they're dismissing um, the words of Christ and they're, don't really understand the Bible and all this stuff, um, whatever. Um, and in the comment section was basically full of people saying that this is exactly what we need to be doing. Good on him for standing his ground. Let's all get out there because we need to fight for truth. We need to fight for our cause. Um, and you know, this is a, I mean, we've all seen the preachers outside of the, the, the you know, sports games or the concerts or whatever, and we always ignore them. I didn't know that they had an organization. They apparently do have um, or an organized presence online. But but this whole thing, this whole, this whole encounter got me thinking about where we are as our, in our current state as a nation. And the current state, it seems, as is kind of manifest in this guy, is that he's accepted an absolute, his absolute stance and his absolute understanding of a fundamentalist interpretation of scripture to the point that he has eliminated all alternatives. It's almost like um, in, I'm sorry, Brevin, I'm spacing on the person whose name is, but it's, it's almost like everything's uh, Flight 92. It's a, uh, and sorry, I, Brevin, remember that guy was who wrote the Flight 92 election article? Uh, 
No, I don't. I, I oh jeez. I like know who you're talking about, but feel free to just assume. Let me here. I can look it up. Light ninety two election. I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, but I didn't have it fully planned out. Yeah, no, that's fine. Feel free to. You can go back. Um, yeah. Let's see. Let's see. Sorry, flight ninety three election. That's the problem. I got that. Uh, Michael I got Anton. The, um, Michael Anton. Yep, Michael Anton. That guy. Okay, so going back. The pro- so promises uh, to in right after eliminating all alternatives. Yep. Um, it's almost like everything. Every is a flight ninety three. And that's a reference to Michael Anton's article that he published in the Claremont Review of Books right before the election, the 2016 election, um, where he declared that our state is like that of the passengers on Flight 93, where we know what's happening. We know what the situation is. We know we have to do something about it, and we have the means to do something about it. And it's going to be unsavory. It's going to lead to a serious loss on our, on our part. But at the end of the day, it is what's necessary to do, and it's our moral obligation to act. Um, and I have a lot of challenges with this article that we can talk about at a later time. Maybe we bring up this article um, and do do part of an episode on it. But it feels like that our political state on both sides and our religious state um, is wrapped up in this idea that we have absolutely nothing left to lose, and that it is a we have one option, and that's to fight. And I think that may be a contributing fact or a contributing part to the the um, incredible divide over these tragedies that we're seeing um, and that Stephen is uh, pointing out as well. So those are my thoughts. Not really a rant. It's more like thoughts and maybe a lament. Yeah. I mean, so many things about politics make you wish that you could just kind of get out into the country and lives an agrarian poet, which is my rant. So the, the family that I married into is fantastic. And one of the uh, fantastic individuals in said family is my cousin, Cameron. And Cameron is a professor at a small Christian liberal arts university uh, somewhere in the middle of Michigan. And uh, he lives like an agrarian poet. He has a house that's overlooking this giant marsh he brews his own beer he does english professor stuff he has a bunch of great kids uh and a ridiculous amount of friends in fact uh just about a little bit less than a week ago i went to an entire mock conference put on by his friends and we're talking like maybe like 15 15 20 people who are just all these academia adjacent people who came together and like 10 people wrote papers just making fun of academics as a profession. They were all hilarious. We, there was lots of beer and other liquids. Uh, everyone was just, you know, laughing their their asses off. And it was fantastic. And it's just like, how do you manage to have such a perfect life of, you know, raising your own sheep, raising, uh, tending to your own bees, brewing, you know, 10 gallons of beer at a time with a porch that overlooks the sunset and a bottomless box of cigars? And it's just the agrarian uh, best possible life. And somehow you're also surrounded by like a ridiculous number of friends, uh, mostly from the Orthodox church there, uh, Stephen. So uh, tip of the hat to you. Um, But anyway, that's the good life. I wish we could all get it somehow. Uh, So that's the goal. Why don't I have that now? Why didn't I have that my whole life? Eudaimonia. That's the that's the dream. Stephen, have you experienced Cameron's porch? I have not, actually. Okay. Uh, for those of you that uh, may not know, I went to uh, my alma mater is uh, the the school in which uh, Brevin's cousin is uh, part of. Yeah, I uh, 
got to see Steven's hallowed philosophy profs probably at their absolute uh, worst, or at least most crass and discourteous. It was great. <laughs> I can only imagine that. Because <laughs> I've only seen them either in like professional academic settings or in like one-on-one situations in which uh, we're, there's still some amount of formality. So I really would be interested to see that. Uh, yes, yeah. indeed. Well, uh- all I can say is I can test spending two evenings on Cameron's porch over, over Brevin's wedding. And I can agree. That's the good life. Indeed. Dang, I'm jealous. <sighs> All right. Well, it's getting late on my end, boys. So uh, I'm about ready to wrap this up. Any final thoughts? The left side of the brain is uh, a usurping little imp. Indeed. Uh, so Not for... usurping. Suppressing. Suppressing. Ah, uh, touche. Yep. Yep. Uh, yep. yep. Okay. Cool. Uh, so for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And this podcast recommends a left brain stroke immediately. Or lobotomy. Both work. Don't we also recommend Evan Williams? That's it. Good. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba